Good morning. Okay, Bible students, how many missionary journeys did Paul go on? What's the traditional answer? Three. That is correct. Very good job. And the reason that's the answer is because there are three missionary journeys that are described in the book of Acts that Paul went on. However, how many missionary journeys did Paul actually go on? And the answer is possibly four or more. So today we are finishing up our series on the life of Paul, okay? So this is Life of Paul, Series 3, Part 17, the final episode. And um, the reason it's Part 17 is because we're in Series 3. The reason we're in Series 3 is because we've stopped and restarted twice now. But if you were to take all of the life of Paul's and put them all together back to back to back, this morning's sermon is Part 44, of our series in the life of Paul. So we're finally finishing this series that we began last year. I think it was last January we began. And so today is the 44th and final part of our series. And so we have been building toward this moment for a while now, okay? Aren't you glad that you came to church this Sunday? Yes. So the final part, part 44, I will begin today by reading the last two verses of the book of Acts. So this is actually the final paragraph of the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. This is what it says. It says, then he stayed, keep in mind the he there is the apostle Paul, okay? Then he stayed two whole years in his own rented house and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with full boldness and without hindrance. And that's how the book of Acts ends. Um, I want to point out two things about it, but I just, I don't know why. I want to pray real quick. Let me pray as we get started. God, I thank you for this time of being able to study your word. I pray that you would help me to communicate it well. I pray you'd forgive me of my sins, ones that I'm aware of, maybe ones I haven't even thought about. And I pray that you would be our teacher this morning and that we would understand your word and what to do in response to what you've said. Um, anything that's merely of me, I pray it would be quickly forgotten. I pray that that which is of you would be remembered for a long time and applied to our life. It's in Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Okay, so that's how the book of Acts ends, what I just read to you. And so I want to point out two things about it. Uh, First of all, the book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest, okay? It says he stayed in his own rented house. It doesn't actually have the word arrest in here, but for those of you who've been following along, you know Paul has been in Roman custody for a while now. He was a prisoner on a ship. He was transported to Rome. There is a Roman uh, guard that has been assigned to him. And so when it says he gets to stay in his house, um, I think that means his imprisonment was in his house. Like that's where the soldiers kept him. So this was probably like a a cushier imprisonment than most because he was allowed to rent an apartment or some sort of building. I don't know what kind of house it was, but at his own expense, he was allowed to stay somewhere and that's where the Roman guards kept him. So it's pretty obvious that the Romans did not consider him to be a threat. Like that's why he's not in a dungeon, but rather he's just being kept in a house that he gets to, you know, like he gets to stay in his own house. It's, I think, pretty obvious the Romans did not consider his message to be a threat because people were allowed to come and go from his house. He was allowed to preach to people in his living room. So even though he could not go out and tell the world about Jesus, which he wanted to do, people were able to come into him, like come into his house and he was able to preach to them in his house and then they could go and take the gospel wherever it needed to go next. Um, And so that's how the book of Acts ends. Paul's under house arrest. And it also ends with the gospel going forth without hindrance. You notice how it ends? There he is in his living room preaching to people. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this, with full boldness and with, what's the final two words? Without hindrance. Without hindrance, which is kind of an ironic ending to the book because 
Paul is certainly hindered at this point, right? He's stuck in a house. He wants to go all over the place and he's not able to. He's, he's been kind of locked in this building. And so it's funny to say without hindrance. And I think Luke's point here is Paul's physical body had been hindered by being stuck in this house. The gospel was without hindrance, right? The proclamation of the word of God is the thing that wasn't hindered. Paul was hindered. The gospel was not hindered. And so that's how the story ends. Now, the question is why? Why does the story end like this? Doesn't it seem unfinished? I mean, for those of you who've been following along, it it sure seems like as you read through this story, we're building toward the time where Paul goes to Rome and he testifies before the Caesar, right? I mean, back in, I I don't know, I think it was chapter 19, he said, I need to go to Rome. And then there was that point where the Lord Jesus said, you need to go to Rome. And then there was the point where he was in that trial and he said, I appeal to Caesar. And they said, oh, you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar, you will go. And he gets on a ship and he's headed to go to Caesar, right? And so he's like, I've got to go to Rome. I've got to go testify before the Caesar. And then there's that storm that comes and it looks like he's not going to make it. And an angel appears to him and says, you will stand before Caesar. So multiple times throughout the story, it sure seems like it's foreshadowing. It's building up, building up. He's going to finally stand before Caesar. So what does the story do? Luke tells us he shows up. He's under house arrest. He's there for two years. He's waiting for his trial before Caesar. The end. (laughs) The end. The the end what? Wait, Luke, Luke, you don't, you can't end the story that way. We've been building towards something and you just have, he's under house arrest. The end. What what happens? Why in the world does the story end like this? Um, And so, I mean, the answer is we don't know for sure. I will say this. As I have been preaching this series over these past however many weeks, 44 weeks, Um, I have operated under the assumption that Luke wrote this up until the present, meaning his present time, the time that he was writing it, that he does, the reason he does not include the rest of the story is because the rest of the story hadn't happened yet. That has been like you've been previous sermons as I preached, you probably noticed, I've kind of assumed that I've assumed that up to this point, Luke's saying, this is the history of the Christian church up until today. And we don't know what's going to happen when Paul stands before Caesar because it hasn't happened at the time I'm writing this, okay? And that could be very well why um, the book of uh, Acts ends the way it does. But it may not be. Like, I need to admit, I cannot prove that. There are scholars who believe that Luke wrote the book of Luke and wrote the book of Acts later on in the first century after these events happened, meaning Luke did know what happened after this, and he purposely left the story unfinished. And I suppose that could be true as well. It could be that Luke left the story unfinished for thematic reasons, that he wanted to end with the gospel in Rome, like going forth without hindrance, um, instead of saying whatever happened next. It could be that another volume was planned, like a sequel. I mean, Acts is already a sequel to the book of Luke. It could be he intended another thing for the next part and it just never got written. Regardless of why Acts ends the way it does, Acts shows us in its final verse the beginning of, or maybe even the continuation of, the fulfilling of the prophecy that Jesus made back in chapter one. For those of you that are familiar with the book of Acts, the Acts chapter one begins with Jesus. Like the, it's kind of the first scene in the book of Acts is the last scene of Jesus's life. Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. And this is what happens back in Acts chapter one. Jesus gathers his followers together for one last conversation. And he says to his followers, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he, then he ascended to heaven. Then you have this whole book and then you get to the end of the book. The book that started with my message is gonna be in your mouths and it's gonna go to the ends of the earth. And then the book of Acts ends with the message of Jesus having traveled all the way from Jerusalem 
to Rome, the capital city of the empire, and then going out from there without hindrance. So I think that if you read the book of Acts, it's saying what Jesus said would happen was happening, right? What Jesus said would happen was happening. That's the message of the book of Acts. Now, I suppose we could, we've got to the last verse of the book of Acts. I guess we could just end the series here, but no, we can't. We cannot end the series here because the name of the series is not book of Acts. The name of this series is the life of Paul and Paul is not dead at this point of the story, right? Like there's some more life left. Paul is not dead in Acts 28, verse 31. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what happened next, right? The, Luke, the story Luke tells us ends right here, but like, what, what should be here? Like what happened next? So there are basically only two options for what happened next. One option is that he was released from prison and the other option is that he wasn't, okay? Which this is basic logic. Like those are the two options, right? You don't even have to be a historian to figure that out, right? He was either released from prison or he wasn't. And, then, and so if he was released from prison, then he went somewhere else that was not in prison for a little while. Um, and then if he wasn't released from prison, then he died in prison. So those are your two options. He was either released from prison or he wasn't. Well, which one is it? Well, why we cannot be dogmatic about it because Luke does not tell us what happened next. I think we have reason to suspect, I think we have good reason to suspect that Paul stood before Caesar as was prophesied that he would and he was released and his case was dismissed and that he continued on with more missionary journeys. And then if early church tradition is correct, he was then rearrested and then martyred in Rome during the time period of Nero's reign when Nero was being cruel to Christians. So I wanna show you some hints about that from the Bible. Like I think there are multiple places in the Bible that hint that that's what happened next. And so I'm gonna show you multiple places in the Bible that I think point in that direction. And then I'm even gonna show you a source outside of the Bible that I think points in that direction. Um, and then we'll go from there. So let me start with these passages. They're gonna come up on the screen. I'm gonna teach you four Bible passages this morning. Second Timothy chapter four, verse 13 is the first one I'm gonna to read to you. And before I even read it, let me go ahead and just explain to you. The book of Second Timothy, a lot of people um, would believe that the book of Second Timothy was one of the last books that Paul wrote. It, the way he wrote it, if you read 2 Timothy through in its entirety, it sure looks like he wrote it just before he died. Like he writes it as if he's about to die. He, he seems to realize his time is coming close. He's not gonna be alive much longer, okay? I fought the good fight, I finished the race. I believe it's from that book. Um, I didn't look that up, so don't quote me. Um, but you got Google, you can figure this stuff out. Anyway, so he's toward the end of his life and uh, when he writes this. So, the, so it looks like he's in his final imprisonment as he writes 2 Timothy. Um, so the question is, when is his final imprisonment? Is it that two years that he was under house arrest in, at the end of Acts 28? Or did he get out and then get rearrested and then wrote 2 Timothy? Hmm, we gotta figure that out. So let's do it. And let me start by reading you. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. He says, when you come, bring the cloak I left in Troas with Carpus, as well as the scrolls, especially the parchments. Now I'll tell you right now, this is literally no one's life verse, okay? I have never met anyone that was like, mm, 2 Timothy 4.13, that's what's got me through a lot of hard times, okay? I bet you none of you have this verse on your refrigerator, right? Nobody cares, right? This is just one of those verses that you glaze over and you think it doesn't matter. I don't even know why God put this kind of thing in the Bible. And yet for this sermon, what's in this verse is going to matter, okay? This is a personal letter Paul is writing. So Paul's the author. He's writing the letter to a guy named Timothy. So when he says, when you come, the, the, the speaker is Paul and the you is Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, when you come and visit me in prison, I want you to bring my jacket and my papers, okay? Obviously I'm stuck. I can't get this stuff, but I would like you. I, the, the, I want you to bring the jacket that I left in Troas and the papers that I left there. I left them at Carpus's house, 
Okay? In, Car- in Carpus's house, I left my jacket and my papers. When you visit me in prison, I need you to bring my cloak and my parchments. Okay? They're in Troas. So you swing, swing by Troas, get my cloak, bring it to me. Okay? Now here's the question. <laughs> when would that have had to happen for him to say it? Well, obviously, would it, like he would, leaving the cloak in Troas would have happened before he was imprisoned, right? So the question is, did Paul ever go to Troas so that he could have left a cloak there prior to Acts chapter 28, right? Did Paul ever go to Troas so that he could have written this in, Act, in the time period of Acts chapter 28? And the answer is technically yes. There was a time he went to Troas. It looks like it's a very brief visit. And in fact, you may remember it. Our associate pastor, Doug Davison, preached the sermon on that Sunday. It's the one where he was preaching and there was a kid in the window and he fell down and died. And then Paul went down and raised him back to life and then came back up and finished the sermon. Remember that, sir? Remember that preach? So that was Troas. So I guess it's theoretically possible he could have put his cloak on the coat rack there you know, and went on and this happens in Acts 28. But here's the issue. <laughs> that story that you may remember, that story happened years earlier, okay? Like Troas, he was in Troas, as far as we know, just the one, that one time, that, the, the, at least that was the last time. The last time he was in Troas, he was there and then he took a boat to another town and was there for a little while. And he took a boat to another town, he was there for a little while. He took a boat to another town and was there for a little while. And then he went to Jerusalem and there was a big kerfuffle and then he was put into Roman custody and then he was sent to Caesarea. And then he was in Caesarea for two years waiting for justice that was never gonna come. Then they put him on a prison ship and he was for weeks on this prison ship until it hit a huge storm and then he crashed on the island of Malta. Then he lived on that island for three months until he was able to get onto another ship and then went to Rome. He gets to Rome and they put him under house arrest and he's in Rome for two years. So this is what I'm thinking. This verse was not written during the time period of Acts 28, he had to have gotten out of prison after Acts 28 because it just, at least to me, you make whatever decision you need to make. And it seems unreasonable to me that he is saying in Acts 28, while he's under house arrest, Timothy, I need you to go all the way to Troas and get the jacket I left there four years ago. Like why in the world would Paul think that there's, that jacket's not sitting on the coat rack in Carpus' apartment anymore. Carpus' been wearing that thing, okay? And the, the papers aren't there either. That was years ago, Paul. It seems more likely that he's saying, Timothy, I need you to get the cloak that I left in Troas recently. But if he had left it in Troas recently, that would mean he had to have gotten out of prison in Acts 28, gone to some other cities, and then got rearrested. The second verse that I have up here is almost the same thing. It's the same principle. 2 Timothy 4.20 says, Erastus has remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. So again, we have Paul going to some city at some point because he, was, he left it, right? He left Trophimus sick at Miletus. So Miletus is the name of the city. Trophimus is the name of a person. So he's saying, there was some point that I was hanging out with a guy named Trophimus. We were in a city called Miletus. Then I left. Trophimus did not come with me because he was sick, right? He was too sick to travel. So I left him there sick and I left Miletus. Now, when could this have happened? Could it have happened before Acts 28? The answer again is technically yes. Paul had been to Miletus. There was a brief trip mentioned in the book of Acts where he was there. But again, that was years ago. It was a minimum of like two and a half years, if not three or four or five years earlier. And so the question is, is, is he still talking about Trophimus being sick from like four years ago? Like, why are you still talking? This, that guy, he either got better or he died, but he's not still sick three or four years later. Why is he, it, when he writes this verse, he seems to be implying that he was with Trophimus when Trophimus was sick in Miletus recently. He's not bringing up something, some, some disease some guy had from four years ago, 
right? He's talking about how he left Trophimus at Miletus recently. But if, if that is what he means, then he had to have gotten out of prison in Acts 28 and had visited Miletus, and then this incident happened. The third one, I think, is the most clear, and that's Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Titus 1, verse 5 says, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and, and as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. So Crete is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. You can tell, by the way, and again, this is a personal letter that Paul's writing to a guy named Titus. So Paul's writing, he's saying, hey, Titus, remember when we went to Crete together? Remember that island? We were there, I was there, you were there, it was great. And there we were, and we, apparently, they planted churches in multiple towns, right? We went around evangelizing people on the island of Crete, and there were multiple Christians in multiple towns, right? There were multiple churches that we planted. And then I left, and when I left, I left you there to finish the task we started. I was with you, and we planted all these churches, and then I left, and I said, okay, now your job is to, what did he say? I, went, I directed you to appoint elders in every town. So we, we started all these churches, and then when I left, I said, okay, now you make sure there are leaders and teachers in all of these churches. So the question is, did Paul ever go to Crete with Titus for a long enough period of time to have evangelized multiple towns and then leave Titus there to finish the job prior to Acts 28? And the answer to that seems, seems to be no. I don't see anywhere that it fits in the timeline unless it happened way, way early on in the book of Acts. Um, the only mention of Paul ever going to the island of Crete in the book of Acts that I can think of is the time he went there during the shipwreck story. Do you remember the shipwreck story from a few weeks ago? And he wasn't there long. If you remember the story, he actually wanted to stay there longer and they didn't let him. Crete was the island he was standing on when he said, this is not a good time of year for sailing. Let's not go out there or because we're all gonna die. Remember, he was trying to convince them to winter there in Crete. Like, let's just stay some months here and once the weather dies down, okay, and springtime hits, we'll go. And they did not listen to him, right? They did not say we're gonna spend a long time in Crete. They said, no, we're leaving. And they took him on a boat against his will and forced him right into the middle of that storm. So when you look back at that story, you have to notice, first of all, Titus was not even in it. I can't tell, that. there's nothing in the story that makes me think Titus was on the boat with him. He was a prisoner on this ship. Titus is not mentioned in that story. And the way the story's told, it does not seem like he was in Crete long enough to have evangelized multiple towns. And so when you look at this, you go, it just doesn't seem to fit very well with the time frame of the book of Acts. However, if Paul was released after the time period of the book of Acts, he could have gone with Titus back to Crete, spent a long time there like he wanted to, planted multiple churches on the island, and then left and told him to set up elders in every town. And then it would make sense that he would write this sentence. The last one that I want to read to you is Romans chapter 15. And this one, starting in verse 23, is quite interesting. Paul says, but now I no longer have any work to do in these provinces. Okay, I've done all the work I can do in the areas I've been. And I have strongly desired for many years to come to you. Okay, now when he says to come to you, what city is he wanting to come to? Keep in mind, this is written, this is the book of Romans. Okay, so he's writing to the Romans and he says, for many years I've desired to come to you. So what city is he trying to go to? Rome, you are significantly faster and smarter than the first service, okay? <laughs> they had a hard time with that, okay? Don't tell them I said that, though. This will be a secret just for like the 300 of us, okay? Um, so now I, I, I no longer have any work to do. I strongly desire for many years to come to you in Rome whenever I travel to Spain. I hope to see you, you Romans, when I pass through Rome, and to be assisted by you for my journey there, which would be where? 
Spain, okay? Sorry, you're doing so, you're doing so good. Just say Rome, whatever he says, say Rome. In Sunday school, you can usually do that with Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, where did they go? Jesus! And the teacher, teacher will give you a Jolly Rancher anyway. Okay, so, so he says, whenever I pass through Rome, I want to be assisted for you by my journey there, the there being Spain, right? He says, the reason I want to visit you is just to pass through. The real place I really want to go is Spain. So this passage does not say that Paul went to Spain. This passage merely says Paul planned on going to Spain, okay? Did he make it? Did he ever get to go there? Now, I will tell you right now, if all we use is the Bible, then this is what I will say. We don't know. The Bible does not say if he went there or not, okay? But I want to quote, I want to show you a quote from an ancient document outside of the Bible, okay? This is a quote from an early Christian named Clement. The name of the book it's from is called First Clement, and you can find it like online. Just Google it. There are, like, it's an ancient document. I think it was originally written in Greek. It's been translated into English multiple times. There's multiple translations online. I found one, a quote that's gonna come up that I found online, one of the translations. So if you wanna look this up, you can. It's in the book of First Clement. It was written around AD 96. So this is during the first century. This would actually be written during the lifetime of these people. Okay, during the lifetimes of these people in the first century, an early Christian named Clement wrote these words. I believe it's in chapter five of this document. It says this, it says, let us place before our eyes the good apostles. Peter, through unjust envy, endured not one or two, but many labors. And at last, having delivered his testimony, departed unto the place of glory due to him. I think that's referring to heaven. Through envy, Paul too showed by example the prize that is given to patience. Seven times he was cast into chains. He was banished. He was stoned. Now we know this from the Bible. It says this. Having become a herald, oh, this is interesting, both in the East and in the West, he obtained the noble renown due to his faith and having preached righteousness to the whole world. So this guy named Clement in the first century, he believed that Paul somehow preached to the whole world. That's an interesting phrase. Why did he think Paul preached to the whole world? And having come to the extremity of the West and having borne witness before rulers, he departed at length out of the world and went to the holy place, again, I'm assuming heaven, having become the greatest example of patience. Now, what's gonna come up on the screen next is a map. I wanna show you a map of, of this area. At the time that Clement was writing, I believe, as best as I can understand it, this was what they called the world. Okay, this is the Mediterranean Sea and the land that's around it. Most of this land was occupied by the Roman Empire at the time. And I think the people in Clement's day and age would have called this the world. When they said Paul preached all over the world, they were not referring to America. It had not been discovered yet. They're not referring to China. I bet you most people in the Roman Empire didn't know there was a China. Okay, this was the empire. And so when you look at what Clement said, he said, this is, this is what Paul did. Paul preached from the, the east to the west. Right? Now, the story of the book of Acts starts in Jerusalem, and then, like I said, it makes it all the way to Rome. But, but what he says, Clement says, is that Paul preached to the whole world, and he specifically says to the extremity of the West. Now, what would have been the extremity of the West? In other words, in this day and time, when Clement's thinking, if you just go as far West as you could possibly go, where does the world end? And the answer back then would have been the Atlantic Ocean. That's the end of the world. And so it seems to me Clement was saying during, during the time period of the first century, Paul made it, I mean, he doesn't use the word Spain, but he made it all the way to the Western part of the Roman Empire. So uh, I, I can't be sure, but I believe it is likely 
that Paul got to go to the place that he planned to go when he wrote the book of Romans. Paul may very well have accomplished a fourth missionary journey, maybe even a fifth missionary journey that that had these places within it. Troas left his coat there. Miletus left a sick guy there. Crete started multiple churches there and perhaps all the way to Spain. And then he was perhaps rearrested and then killed in Rome under the persecutions of Nero. And that then brings us to the end of Paul's life. As best as we could tell, he did something like that and then was brought to Rome and then he died for his faith in Rome. And so that takes us all the way to the end of the storyline of this series that we've been in for 44 weeks. And so as we conclude our 44-week journey, let me ask the question, what's the point? What is the point of the life of Paul? I mean, obviously there are many points because we preached 44 sermons in the life of Paul and I don't think there was ever a time that, we, that we, we read you a passage and we went, well, that's got nothing to teach us and then just moved on, right? We never said this teaches us nothing. So I, in some ways, I think you could say there's at least 44 points to the life of Paul because that's the way we structured it. But that's not the question I'm asking. Today, I'm trying to ask the question, what do we learn from Paul's life as a whole? Not from any one individual episode, but like if you step back and look at the whole thing, what is the lesson or what are the lessons we learn from the totality of his life? And I think there are at least two, and I wanna end this series with these two. When we look at the life of Paul as a whole, I think we learn these two things. I'm just gonna give you both points right now. Number one, that God loves everyone. And number two, that judgment is coming. Number one, that God loves everyone. Another way of saying this is that God loves the Gentiles too. I think that's a lesson from Paul's life. Oh my goodness, God loves the Gentiles also. And then number two, judgment is coming and you need to escape it. And I believe that Paul had to have believed both of those things in order for him to live the life he lived. In order for these last 44 weeks to have been the way they are, he had to have believed those two things. So let me take them one at a time. The first one is God loves everyone. This is something I think most Americans just assume. We just go like, well, of course, I mean, if somebody says God loves you, everyone's like, well, yeah, it's God. It's his his job. God is love. I heard that somewhere, right? And we just assume God loves us. And we don't, I don't think it's often emphasized that we're sinful and we don't deserve to be loved. I think lots of times it's emphasized, well, of course God loves me. He's loving. Um, And and I don't think that was a given in ancient times, okay? In our culture, I mean, I've never said God loves you to someone and they go, even me, a Gentile, right? (laughs) Like never heard that. But again, in ancient times, I don't think it was a given that just God loves everybody of every single nation and anybody can turn to him who wants to. I don't know that that was a given, but it seems to me Paul was one of the first people to truly get this. The earliest Christians were all Jewish, and I think it was hard for them to fathom that God cares about the Gentiles too. I mean, eventually they got it, but, but it, was, it was hard at first for them to get that. But once Paul realized that God had accepted people from other nations, that once Paul realized that that the way of salvation for the Jews had been extended to the Gentiles, that changed his life. And he spent a considerable amount of time and money and energy and effort trying to share the gospel with everybody. So much so that this is what he says. I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter three, starting in verse one. 
He's writing to the Ephesians and he says this. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, this is important to get, he's, this is Jewish Paul and he's talking to the Gentiles that are in Ephesus. He says, I'm, on behalf of you Gentiles, you have heard, haven't you, that about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you, right? There's grace that God gave me to pass along to you Gentiles. Verse three, this mystery was made known to me by revelation. Okay, now the word mystery there, I think means this was something that was a secret. This was something that was not known. This is a mystery. A lot of people don't know this, but I, but I learned it, okay? The mystery was made known to me by revelation. God revealed to me something that a lot of people didn't know. What was it? Let's keep reading. It was made known to me by revelation as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight about the mystery of the Messiah. And here we are 2,000 years later and we can read it and understand the insight he had about the mystery of Messiah. Whatever this mysterious secret thing that a lot of people didn't know about, it had something to do with the Messiah, which is a Jewish thing. Keep in mind, Messiah is a Jewish word, okay? Insight about the mystery of the Messiah, verse five. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. What is this thing? What is this mysterious thing that we now know? Here it is. <laughs> the Gentiles are co-heirs. What? Yeah, that's the big surprise. That's the big reveal. Not everybody knew this, but now they know it through his holy apostles and the prophets by the spirit. We now know the Gentiles are co-heirs. Gentiles meaning all the people in the world other than Jewish people, all those people. They are all what? Co-heirs. So the word heir means someone who inherits something. Co means they inherited it alongside of somebody else. So you have these people who have inherited like this inheritance from God, this salvation from God, but they're co-heirs. The Gentiles have inherited along with some other group of people. Who are they? The Jewish people. Now, of course, that was a given. Of course, the consolation of Israel was going to arrive and one day rescue the Jews. They knew that. The thing that was, this, the, thing that was the mystery is the Gentiles are co-heirs. Along with them, the salvation is extended to every other people group in the whole world. They are co-heirs. They are members. This is good. There's a lot of Gentiles in this room members of the same body and partners of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I don't know, we're talking about promises that were made to Jewish people. And then these people can be partners in it, right? Partners of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I, now Paul's talking about himself, I was made a servant of this gospel, this message, this good news, by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints. Remember, he went around persecuting people. He was very bad. To proclaim, now look at this to proclaim to the Gentiles. This is what was given to me, the job to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah. And then later on in that chapter, verse 14, he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in the inner man through his spirit. And look at this, and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. Imagine what this was like for the, the, the Jewish Messiah may dwell in your little Gentile hearts through faith in him. The savior that was promised to them can dwell in all of your hearts. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love. 
I hope you guys get how huge this is. And to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And that extends all the way to many of us in this room, does it not? Paul was one of the early people in the New Testament to understand this. And so he gave his life to the cause of proclaiming the salvation of the Messiah to everyone in the world. But then it doesn't end there. There's another point that goes along with this, and that is judgment is coming. And the reason I add that is because I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about what's the point of Paul's life, and I, and I thought to myself that the Gentiles are in too, like that they can come to know Jesus also. I thought that's definitely the point of his life, but I realized, no, you can't just leave it there. Because I, I know, I mean, I, just, I have a friend that would say like, God loves everybody, but he means that in a different sense. He, I don't think he understands this other thing that Paul must have understood, and it's the judgment is coming. So for this one, I want to read to you from Acts chapter 17, just a brief little section. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching to the Athenians, okay? That means he's in Athens, Greece. So when he's preaching to Athenians, that means he's preaching to Greek people. He's preaching to Gentiles. And this is what he says to the Gentiles in Athens. Uh, Acts 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So obviously that's a reference to Jesus, right? He's talking about Jesus being raised from the dead, but he's saying Jesus is the one, the one who was raised from the dead. He is going to come back and he's gonna judge the world, all the peoples in the world. That's why all of you need to repent because his judgment is coming. And so I think this is important for you to get. You see, if Paul merely believed what a lot of Americans believe, which is God loves everyone, so God will forgive everyone, no matter what they do, no matter what they believe, no matter whether they turn to him or not, no matter whether they repent or not, like everyone is safe eternally because God is love. If that's what Paul believed, he would not have traveled all over the Mediterranean world proclaiming the gospel. He wouldn't, because it wouldn't have mattered. They're all going to be forgiven anyway, right? And so no, Paul had to believe both, that there is a judgment coming on everyone because of our sins, and there is a God who has lovingly made a way of salvation for all peoples. Salvation from judgment is real, and it is for everyone, who, everyone, that was the big deal, who places their trust in the good news of Jesus Christ. It was the combination of those two things that motivated him. If he didn't believe that God cared even about the Gentiles, he'd have stayed home, right? And just celebrated the salvation of the Jews. Or if he believed that God cared about the Gentiles, but he didn't believe there was a judgment coming on those who do not repent and do not turn to Jesus as Lord and Savior, he also would have stayed home. There's nothing to warn the people about. It's the combination of there is punishment for sin and there is salvation in Jesus for anyone who turns to him. That's what motivated the actions that we have learned about for the past 44 weeks. And so I think that's one of the main things we learn from the life of Paul. Thanks for sticking in there. It was a long time. Let's pray. God, I thank you for, I mean, we, we've really learned a lot of Bible passages this past couple of years just on Paul. We've learned some other things too because we took some breaks, but 
We've learned a lot about his life and I thank you for what you've given to us, what you have revealed to us. I thank you for what you've revealed to him. When he says, this is a mystery that I received by way of revelation. Like, thank you for telling him. And, and, and by telling him, thank you for telling us. I mean, he said that by telling him, you, you, the rest of us can know. So I thank you for that. And so I pray for us in this room. Many of us are Gentiles. And we thank you for saving us. A lot of us have just grown up in a culture where it's just a given. Well, of course God loves me. And we don't, we don't even consider like, well, what if, what if he didn't? And if he does, did, did you really deserve it? And even those among us who are Jewish people, I mean, I, I don't know that they go, well, we're the ones that deserved it. I, I think there's somewhere in the New Te- uh, Old Testament where it even says that God chose the Jewish people because they weren't very big or very successful or very good. And so I guess Jew and Gentile alike, here we are going like, well, we don't deserve your love. Like the words of that song. <laughs> I'm, I'm prone to wander and to rescue me from danger. You interposed your precious blood. And so we're, we're not very good people. We're, we're sinful people. And then you come into our situation and rescue us. And so um, like on behalf of anybody here who, who might agree with me, I pray to you and say, we're sorry for just assuming like you, you just ought to love us as we are. And instead we say, well, thank you so much for loving us as we are. And we're so glad we are able to turn to you and be saved. And I pray also in relationship to like the idea that judgment is coming. I pray that if there's anybody in this room that, that thinks like, well, I don't, I don't know, there's a, I've never been reliving my life like there's a judgment coming. I pray that they would take it serious enough that, that they would seek you while there's still time left. I pray that they would turn to you. And so I thank you for what you've told us. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for this time together and all that we've learned. And I pray and ask for your blessing in advance for the other Bible passages we're gonna learn the rest of this year. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.